Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. So we are finishing up our series that we've been in, the series called Stuck. It's a four-week series to go over the 12 steps as is found in Alcoholics Anonymous. We also have a ministry here called Life Path that goes through the 12 steps. And you might wonder why we were crazy enough to try 12 steps in four weeks. The math just doesn't quite work out. And so I want to just reiterate what others before me have said. The goal of this series was not so that we could all as a church work the 12 steps. We realize that that's not possible. But the goal of this series was to give a taste of the 12 steps and maybe take the mystery out of this tool for some of you who've never really known what they were about. Perhaps you've heard about them, but you thought, well, that's just for Alcoholics Anonymous. Or, yeah, we know that there's Life Path, but but that's not for me. And the hope is that through this series, some of you may have recognized, oh, you know what? This is broader than I thought it was, and there might be a place for me at Life Path. That might actually be a great next step for the journey that I'm on. So our goal was to give some exposure and remove some of the mystery, not to say, okay, now go and do all these things. So as we, um, as we wrap up this week, um, please hear me that none of us expect that you would have already accomplished steps one through nine while you're sitting here to hear steps 10, 11, 12. Um, this is just kind of getting a big overview of the whole thing. So for a review that you've seen before, if you've been here in the last few weeks, steps one through three are largely about peace with God. Uh, Peace with others, it's kind of in steps four through seven, Uh, excuse me, peace with ourselves, and then peace with others, steps eight through ten. Last week, Brian Candelo talked about recognizing and admitting where we've done wrong and making amends for that. So as we look at steps 10 through 12 today, we're really looking at this area then called keeping the peace, taking what we've learned and how do we then work that around all the everyday issues of our life and have it be influencing us as we move forward. So it's fascinating to me as we look at these, because these 12 steps were, um, are practiced in Alcoholics Anonymous, were written by somebody getting over alcoholism and, and finding a way to live right living in the midst of that, it's fascinating to me that nowhere in these 12 steps does it say, stop drinking alcohol. Matter of fact, if you think back to week one, when Steve Fowler had us write in the blank, admit that I'm powerless over blank, right? And we all kind of thought of our own things there. Nowhere in these steps does it say, stop doing that thing that you wrote in the blanks. See, for me, and if I have said this before, I'm sure I'll say it again, but for me, the place where I go, my compulsive behavior when I am stressed and exhausted and my margins are thin is that I compulsively use screen media. Doesn't matter if it's quality screen media, it could be Netflix, it could be Candy Crush. And it's embarrassing, but I can spend, I can binge for hours. And when I, and when I stop, I'm like, God, why did I do that? And I'm so frustrated with myself. But nowhere in the 12 steps does it say, Jennifer, stop binging on screen media. See, my tendency when I run into those places where I'm stuck, those places where I lean into the things that are not as healthy for me, my tendency is to go, I'm going to try harder. I am going to do better, and I am going to stop doing this, by golly, and I'm, and it's, I'm white-knuckling it, right? It's this white-knuckling, I can do better, and I, and I get down on myself. I beat myself up. Boy, I'm not even a good Christian, and I'm never going to get over this, and here it is again, and when will I ever learn? And on and on it goes, and yet we find that these steps are not a white-knuckling manual, 
These aren't a behavior modification tool so that you can try harder. Because what's happening here is the places where you and I get stuck are the symptoms of a deeper issue. And yes, the symptoms are the problem. But as long as we're coming at those symptoms head on and trying to white knuckle our way to do better, yeah, I could probably stop watching the screen for a week or even a month or even a year, but I'm not truly unstuck because that's a symptom of what's going on down here. And what's going on down here is I need to know who God is and who I am and how much I need him to be God in my life. That the truth is I am not God and I cannot control myself, my world, or my universe and I need God to redeem and rescue me. And so these are not behavior management steps. These are recognizing our need for God steps so that he can deal with the below the waterline things that can change and transform the way we live, not just fix one bad behavior. See, I think it's a really great picture here in John 10, 10. One of my favorite verses in scripture, and it says this. The thief, that's the devil or the enemy, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the places that we get stuck. They are stealing our innocence, stealing our joy, stealing our soul, killing, destroying our relationships, destroying our jobs, steal, kill, and destroy. This is where we get stuck. But I, Jesus, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has a life to the full for us, and we miss out on that when we continue to enter into our stuck behaviors, and yet it's not by trying harder that we will get unstuck, it's by recognizing that he is the one bringing that life to us, and only he can do that. And so as we lean into steps 10 and 11 and 12 in this keeping the peace, what we're talking about today is grace, that when our stuck stuff comes back up again, which it will, friends, We've had this picture of a maze for our series, right? The 12 steps aren't about getting through the maze and, and never being stuck again. They're about learning the principles that will help us to navigate the maze of our life when we find that we are stuck again. And so this keeping the peace is that grace of here's how we continue to practice what we've learned without going back into shaming ourselves or beating ourselves up or, or, or giving up or quitting or, or giving into condemnation. So I attended my first steps group. That's what we used to call them. Now we call them Life Path. But I attended my first steps group in the fall of 1999. I was 27 years old and I'd been a Christ follower for 22 years. I'd asked Jesus into my heart when I was five. I went because I sensed God calling me to go, but I wasn't really sure I understood it all yet. But I quickly realized that the reason I was there is because I had a driving need to be right and that was playing out in my life as compulsive worry. I was paralyzed by worry and anxiety. It was beginning to impact my relationships, my work, my self-esteem, and I didn't know what to do about it. And so I went to the first place I knew what to do, and that is the church and the body of Christ. And I said, I'm struggling with anxiety and worry, and I'm not sure how to get through this. And people very honestly and truthfully told me, well, you need to trust God. And I realized that after having been a Christ follower for 22 years, and I'd been to, I was in church whenever the doors were open. I'd been to all the Sunday school classes and the Bible studies and the seminars, and, and I didn't know how to trust God. I didn't know how this idea of trusting God translated to the worry and anxiety that I felt on a daily basis. And what I felt when people said, you need to trust God, was shame. Because how could I have been a Christ follower for 22 years and not know how to trust God in the midst of the real things that I'm dealing with on a daily basis? And so I ended up in a group 
learning these steps that we've been just reviewing over, you know, giving you an overview of in the last few weeks. But, but this group was a group that together we worked through the steps one at a time. We talked about them and we were honest with each other and working these steps in the context of community with a group of safe people who were also working the steps changed my life. Changed my life. For the first time, I caught a glimpse of what it truly meant to trust God when it was just broken down in these tiny baby steps. I remember a conversation one of the first nights and the author had written about releasing the hands of your mind as a picture for how to let go of worry. And I had it just blown my mind because I thought, yes, that's what this is about. If I'm holding a ball and somebody tells me to drop it, my brain knows the signals to send to my hands to drop the ball. But if I'm stuck in worry and somebody tells me to let it go, my brain does not know the signals to send to release the hands of my mind from this. And I was sharing this with my group, how excited I was about this author putting something into words. And I said, because the hands of my mind, and I'm just going on because I can sometimes. (laughs) And my group leader stopped me and she interrupted me and she said, so are you saying that you're powerless over this? Yes, I'm powerless over this because I don't know how to fix it. And I don't, she interrupted me a second time you got to be strong to be a group leader sometimes. And she said, that's all this step is. Step one, you don't have to know how to fix it. You don't have to know how to figure it out from here. You You don't have to know how to move from what you're discovering to trust. This is the only part of the step. Are you powerless? Yes, I am. It was an exhilarating journey, and it was setting me free. It was setting me free to release my need for control and my perception of image maintenance so that I could take days one at a time and entrust them to God. Fast forward two or three years, December 19th, 2002. Our second son was born. Our first son, Josiah, was 21 months old. He was nursing an ear infection and a low-grade fever. Titus, born December 19th. December 23rd, middle of the night, I go to feed him and he's a little warm. I pay a little bit of attention, he's really warm. He's got a fever and nobody likes a high fever in a four day old baby. So by 4.30 in the morning, Jeff and I were loading our 21 month old son and our four day old son into the car to go to the emergency room. And I hope that none of you have ever been in the emergency room with a four day old baby, but getting that blood draw is no fun. And after three hours of baby and toddler in the emergency room and seeing the blood reports and all this, the doctor said, you know, this doesn't look too alarming to us. We think he's got a fever, but we don't think it's terrible. So you guys have an appointment with your pediatrician today. So keep that appointment and, you know, go. So we went to Rock and Rogers for breakfast because that's what you do when you've been up all night and you need to get some food before you go to your pediatrician in South Salem. And we walk in the office and he walks in, he's seen the report from the hospital and he says, you're going back to the hospital to get checked into the pediatric unit. And we're like, okay. He's like, yeah, no, these numbers are too high. The white blood's too high. And I'm like, well, what happened in the ER? And he's like, the people in the ER are great, but they do not see four-day-old babies. In a 10-year-old, this would not be alarming. In a one-year-old, this would not be alarming. But in a four-day-old, this is alarming. You're going back to the hospital. Okay. So we've got... Josiah with us. Can we take Josiah to our parents first? Nope. Have your parents come and meet you at the hospital. Okay, this is getting more and more intense as we go. So we get down to the hospital and my parents meet us there and and I'm handing off Josiah who four days ago was my only child. (laughs) And he's got a fever and an ear infection and I'm giving him to my mom and I can't take care of him. 
I'm grateful for the support system, but that's kind of hard. And then I turn back into the hospital and my four-day-old is getting a spinal tap and more blood work and an IV placed in his hand with this gauze wrap around it so that he can't pull it out. And he's dehydrated and he's got a fever and we're kind of just getting into what's this going to look like. And, you know, to finish the medical story for you, um, he was fine. You know that if you've met us because he's taller than I am now. And apparently when you're teeny tiny, a virus will present the same as a bacterial infection, but a bacterial infection can kill you and a virus is fine. And he had a virus. So we spent two days in the hospital. We went home on Christmas day. He's fine. But in the moment that afternoon, about three o'clock, I finally got an opportunity to drive home and, and get a shower. And as I was leaving the parking garage of the hospital, I had a, what I can only describe as a breakdown. <laughs> I'm in the van and I'm driving and here's what's going on. I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I don't have what it takes. I can't take care of two kids. I can't be a mom. I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't. And that hyperventilating is starting. And God just gently nudged me and asked this question, Jennifer, what in the last 11 hours could you not do? And I thought back over the morning and I thought, you know what? There was nothing, everything that was asked of me physically, I was perfectly capable of doing in the last 11 hours. But mentally and emotionally, my brain was going haywire. I was working overtime in my head to try to keep everything straight, to control it all. I was worried. <laughs> My compulsive worry had been exposed again and with a vengeance. I realized the reality of my breakdown was I can't worry for two kids. I can't keep my head wrapped around all the mental work it takes to think through every outcome and detail and control their lives. <laughs> I was grateful to learn that at four days old instead of 14, although I will confess it's been a process of continuing to remember that along the years. But here I'd had this eye-opening, the heavens open, this divine encounter with God where I had learned how to trust him. I had shared with people about this journey. And here when I faced a true test of it, I failed. I failed the test. I knew how to trust God. I had experienced what it was like to admit that I was powerless and that I was not in control. And yet in the moment, my stuff was back in my face. What do we do when our stuck places, when our stuff cycles back up around and even though we've experienced some degree of victory over it, there we are again. Do we beat ourselves up and go, oh, I'll never get this? Do we give into condemnation or by the grace that God extends to us, will we walk in that same grace to ourselves and say, oh, oh, this is my compulsive worry raising up. And, and I've learned what to do about this. And I remember it's to admit that I am powerless over my human condition. And I am powerless over what's happening in that hospital room. And I am powerless over what's happening at my parents' house with my other son. I can't control any of it, but God can restore me to sanity. So I will turn my life and my will and my children and my family over to him. And I will trust him. And this peace returns. It's this process of keeping the peace by giving ourselves the grace that God gives us. God doesn't expect our stuff to never rise up again. He knows that we are fallen. He knows that until we reach heaven, we live in the in-between, between the perfection of the garden and the perfection of heaven. There is brokenness where you and I live. And when we face our brokenness or the brokenness with others... Are we free to lean back into what we've learned in grace rather than condemn ourselves for the fact that, ah, here I am again. 
So how do we practice these principles or keep this piece that we've learned in steps one through nine? Or maybe it wasn't that you learned it in the steps, but you've been learning it for years here in this place. Because let's be honest, these steps aren't just a psychological tool. These are the basis of the gospel. These things that we've been learning about doing, these are the basis of true discipleship. Quite honestly, this is pretty parallel and synonymous with what we call sanctification. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus and reflecting more and more of his character to the world around us. So how do we keep this peace? Let's take a look at step 10. Step 10 says, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. So this is a recap of steps four through nine. Over the last two weeks, we've been breaking down, taking personal inventory, noticing the patterns in our life, asking God to remove our shortcomings. And then last week, Brian talked about recognizing where we've been wrong and making amends. Those steps, four through nine, are all wrapped up in this step 10. It's the way we keep the peace. It's the way that we daily go, hey, how are we doing? Some people at the end of the day might say, you know what? What went well today and and what didn't go so well? Or where did I see God at work today and where did I not see God at work today? It might be as simple as an evening question like this. Have I indulged in blank? And this is the same blank that Steve Fowler gave us that first week. I admit that I'm powerless over blank, right? So at the end of the day, I need to ask myself, have I indulged in compulsive worry today? Or have I indulged in compulsive media use? Or perfectionism? We've talked about impulsiveness or stubbornness, perhaps dishonesty or fear or self-pity. I don't know what goes in the blank for you, if it's an underlying attitude or an action that you take, but whatever's in the blank for you, at the end of the day, we keep short accounts. Say, have I indulged in that today? And in that, have I harmed anyone? And if I have, I wanna promptly admit that and make the amends that need to be made so that I keep short accounts in this keeping the peace by remembering to just take daily inventory and make things right. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. There's several phrases in here that I want us to break out this morning, but before we do that, just point out that when you take this step as a whole, it is actually the outflow of steps one through three. When we've made that peace with God, this is the step that reminds us how to continue to walk in that peace on a daily basis by pursuing what they call conscious contact with God. We might call that recognizing God's voice, noticing his presence, acknowledging our need for him and his daily guidance. Some of us might have called this daily devotions along the way. This is when we recognize that we need God in our life and we practice those things that help us connect to his presence in our lives. So for some, that is prayer. Anytime we talk with God, we are pursuing conscious contact with him. For others, that might be meditation, not Eastern meditation where we're seeking to empty our mind and stay empty, but Christ-centered meditation where we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come and fill us up and speak to us and teach us and direct us. It might be scripture. Some of us connect with God when we have his word in front of us. As a matter of fact, I meant to say this earlier, but um, 
scripture for this particular message, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place because we have several steps to cover. But if you're the person who just loves to be able to dig a little deeper into scripture about what the message was about, I've spent quite a bit of time in Philippians 3 and 4 and find a lot of parallels with the 12 steps in those two chapters. So if you wanted to go deeper with this one, that'd be a great way to dive into scripture through Philippians 3 and 4. Worship. Spiritual friendship. I'm a verbal processor. Part of the way I find conscious contact with God is through talking with others about my spiritual journey. Nature, for some of us, just being in creation connects us to the creator. Silence, when there's nothing distracting. Art, journaling, simplicity, getting rid of the distractions in our life. Caring for others, extending God's mercy. Gratitude is a practice that reminds us of that conscious contact with God. Next phrase says this, uh, conscious contact with God as we understood him. It's easy to kind of blow past this because there's no real instruction, it seems like. But I want us to pause on this phrase because in this phrase, I hear grace. Because see, all of this, whether it's the 12 steps or our spiritual journey that we're on outside of the 12 steps, we come to God as we are. We are finite. He is infinite. We are human. He is divine. We will never understand the fullness of his divinity. We will never understand the fullness of his godhood. And he understands that. He understands that we are but dust, that we are limited by our humanity, that we cannot possibly see or know all that he is. And so when he invites us to be present with him, he invites us as we understand him now, not as we think we should understand him. Paul, I think, draws this beautifully in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15. He's been teaching some spiritual truths, and now he says this. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. With humility, I say this is what I think, and I could be wrong. And it's okay if you disagree with me. And it's okay if we think differently. It's okay if we're confused. It's okay if we have questions or doubt because God invites us to him only living up to what we have already attained, only bringing what we have already understood. Friends, we get to walk this journey from where we are, not where we should be or where we see others who we think are so much smarter than us. We get to come to God as we understand him and trust him to increase our understanding of him, to increase our knowledge and awareness and familiarity with his character and his person, to deepen our spiritual roots and increase the maturity in the faith. With humility, we come as we understand him, not as we think we should or comparing ourselves to others. And as we come to him, we're praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. What would that look like if you and I truly prayed only for knowledge of God's will? See, I don't know about you, but I pray a lot about what I want God to do. I actually kind of tell God what I think he should do, because I can just see it all, and it just makes a lot of sense to me. Let me give you an example. When the boys were little, and I've already told you they were 21 months apart, so I hope you've already come to the conclusion that I was tired for a long time. Three, four years, I don't know, I was just tired. 
And on any given day, the boys would nap in the afternoon, and usually their naps would overlap for some amount of time. And so sometimes I'd wake up in the morning, and I would already know, this day is going to be hard, and I am napping. When they nap, I am napping. And invariably, the days that I was planning to nap, they would not nap at the same time. Somebody would stay awake either babbling or calling for me or crying, and here's how that would go. I would go lay down on my bed because I'd just put them down. And anger would rise up in me. And I would pray, and here's what my prayer would be. Dear Jesus, make him go to sleep. (laughs) Do you know that he never once answered my prayer (laughs) to control another human being? Did you know that God is not actually in the practice of answering our prayers to control and dictate what other human beings do? Do you know that God is not actually even in a practice of making human beings do what he wants? See, he gave us choice. In the garden, he gave us choice. And throughout history, he has given us choice. And we call it free will. It's the beauty of being able to choose to follow him and have a loving relationship with him because we are not robots controlled by his whim. And so when we pray for knowledge of God's will, we lean into who he is and what he has promised us, not the way we want him to control the world around us. So we lean into the fact that he promised us his presence and he promised us his provision and his protection and his guidance. He promises us that he is our redeemer. He calls himself our savior and our refuge and our rock. He promises us that he will turn what the enemy means for evil to his good and that he will redeem the brokenness of our world, but he does not promise us that he will control the other humans in our lives. And so my prayer changed by the grace of God. Trust me, I knocked on that door far too many times. My prayer changed to this, dear Jesus, it has become apparent that I'm not going to get a nap today. Would you please give me what I'm going to need for the rest of today? Because I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can make it. So would you give me what I need? And he answered that prayer every single time. He never, ever failed to give me the energy, the patience, the love, the creative ideas for dinner, (laughs) the strength to make it through the day that I didn't get the nap. This truth came home to me a little closer, a little deeper, the week at Christmas time this year. Many of you know, some of you don't, that uh, my mom got sick Christmas Eve, and we spent a week in the ICU with her at Salem Hospital, and and she passed away on January 1st. And, And I am sorry if this is the first that you're hearing about that. But during that week in the ICU, we were praying for God's mercy. But I found that as I was driving home every day, I was telling God what his mercy should look like. And as the week progressed, it became clear to me that he and I didn't have the same idea of what mercy looked like. And see, for many of us, mercy could look like different things. But for me, in this particular situation, my mom had been in chronic pain for 10 years. And she, and, and she was in such a difficult place. And my view of God's mercy would be if he would take her quickly to be with him. I just knew the joy that was waiting on the other side when she got to be with Jesus and free of all this pain. But as the week went on and, and she wasn't going quickly, I was kind of going, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? There was so much pain. And as the week went on, as I began to see what God was doing, and I saw the end result and could look back, here's, here's what God was doing. 
All of our family wasn't in town that week. And my mom was non-responsive and unconscious most of the week. And by the end of the week, when all of the family was back in town, mom woke up enough to look us in the eye and to tell us that she loved us and to tell us that she was ready to go be with Jesus and to say goodbye. See, I thought mercy would have been taking her out of her pain quicker, but God knew that mercy was that our family needed a good goodbye. God's mercy so far superseded what I could have ever asked him for or ever imagined. And my mom now knows the beauty and the freedom and the grace and the pain-free existence in heaven, and we got a good goodbye. See, when we are trying to control and tell God what to do, his ways are so much higher and so much different, and yet it is so hard for you and I to trust in the midst of when it's not going the way we think it should. I struggled. I struggled. I told God. There was this moment in ICU, and he kind of whispered to my soul, do you trust me? And I said, no, I don't trust you. I don't trust your outcomes. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're going to do. Is there more pain upon pain after this? I sat here Sunday morning, January, December 31st. And there was a worship set that was so just written just for me. And he whispered to my soul and he said, do you trust me? And I said, I trust your heart. I still question your outcomes and your methods and the things that you allow us to walk through. But God, at the core of who I am, I trust your heart. And that is all I can anchor into. And that's all we're being asked to anchor into when we're being asked to pray for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out is will you and I trust his heart and the power that he will give us to walk through whatever is ours to walk through on any given day or in any given reality? Will we entrust the outcomes to him and allow ourselves to be followers. Step 12, as we wrap up. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, notice it does not say, having had some excellent behavior modification as a result of these steps. Having stopped doing whatever it is that I was hoping to stop doing as a result of the steps, no. It says a spiritual awakening. Because remember, the things that drive us to this type of change, the things that make us realize that we need change, those are the symptoms. And what's happening underneath is the need for a spiritual awakening where you and I realize that we are not God and we can entrust our realities to him. So having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Friends, when we have had a spiritual awakening, we cannot help but carry this message to others. I think sometimes of evangelism and the church, and sometimes we're afraid because we're like, well, what if they're offended? Or what if they just think that I'm trying to make them believe what I believe? Friends, I'm not trying to make you believe what I believe. I want you to know that I have found a hope and a strength and a future that is not based on me never messing up again. It's based on the fact that every time I mess up, every time my stuff comes in my face, I know that I can turn to God and receive the grace that he is extending to me and Walk in the ways that he has taught me to walk. I had a friend who said once, when you are moving from point A to point B on the road, and you head down the road and you get knocked off into the bushes, when you come back to the road, you're not back at point A. You're back where you got knocked off, and you get back on the road and you keep going. This is the grace of practicing these principles in all our affairs. It's practice. And when we practice, we realize that it's going to come up again. 
Maybe not the same symptoms. I know there are many who have been clean and sober for years. The underlying issues that you and I deal with, those continue until we get to heaven. And we might find a different place to get stuck, and we find that we need these principles to help us continue to work through those stuck spaces. When we talk about practicing these principles, I think of that recycling symbol, the arrows that make a circle. We learn these things, we practice these things, we recognize where we've done it again, and we learn these things, and we practice these things, and we recognize where they came up again, and it's this symbol of grace. We're practicing, we're not trying to be perfect, we're learning as we go. We don't beat ourselves up, but we anchor back into what we've learned before. Again, Paul speaks to this so beautifully in Philippians 3. I'm going to read it here from uh, my Bible, but it will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along. I don't mean to say that I've already attained, I've already achieved these things, or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I made it through all five services without getting tongue-tied on that. Thank you. I was nervous about that one. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Yes, I've gone to a life path group. Yes, I've experienced a degree of freedom, but no, I haven't achieved anything. I'm not perfect, but I do press into the perfection that is mine in Christ because he has already done the work to make me righteous. And that's what I lean into when I recognize that, oh, I've done it again. And I lean into the righteousness that Christ has given me, pressing forward to what he is calling us to rather than getting caught up in the shame of condemnation. I thought it would be appropriate as we're talking about step 12 and carrying this message and wrapping up our series to invite my friend Diane to come. Diane has worked these 12 steps, has carried this message to others, and I invited her to carry that message to us today. I really appreciate you being here. Okay. And here's what's gonna happen, you guys. Diane is gonna introduce herself, and we're going to say, hi, Diane, okay? All right, here we go. Hi, everybody, my name is Diane. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. I wanna do that all day. I began to, oops, let's start at the front. I was raised in an alcoholic home uh, with an emotionally distant father. I was an abused child, and this resulted in my very first addiction, food. I was a loner in school. I felt dirty, damaged, and different. I didn't have any idea how to develop or maintain healthy relationships. I began using drugs and alcohol at the age of 18, and there was no turning back from there. Throughout the progression of my addiction, I regularly used marijuana, crystal methamphetamine, and alcohol to the point of blackout. After one such blackout, I came to, covered in blood from a fight, and I was arrested for assault. This was my wake-up call. I had reached what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls incomprehensible demoralization. These events drastically altered my life forever. With the guidance of a counselor, I checked myself into a 30-day rehabilitation program. It was there I was introduced to these 12 steps. During my time in treatment, I worked through steps one, two, and three. I understood without a doubt that my life was unmanageable, that I was insane, and I trusted 
in a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. I found a sponsor, someone who had worked through the steps to guide me through mine. She walked with me as I completed a fearless and thorough fourth step. I didn't leave out one single detail. See, the fourth step is the linchpin for long-lasting, healthy recovery. With her help, I identified my character defects. I prayed for God to remove them, and I began the process of making a list of those I had harmed. I made direct amends to those people whenever possible. These were financial amends, amends to employers, to my family, including my ex-husband. I learned that when making amends, I wasn't saying, I'm sorry. When we amend the Constitution of the United States, we don't say, I'm sorry, we make a change. This is a program of change and restoration. When I was unable to make direct amends, I made living amends. What that means is that I no longer engage in those destructive behaviors in my relationships today. I continue to take a daily inventory and I rightly I write my wrongs promptly. I pray, I meditate, I seek God's direction for my life, and whenever I have the opportunity, I share my story, carrying the message and practicing these principles in all my affairs. I began to experience the promises of this program and working these 12 steps immediately. I had an entirely new outlook on life. I no longer regretted my past, nor did I wish to shut the door on it. I live a life of honesty, openness, and willingness today. I was just over a year sober when I met my husband and best friend in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have built our relationships on the truths and principles of the 12 steps. I encountered and said yes to a relationship with the one true higher power, Jesus Christ. I have two fantastic children who have never seen me drink or use. I have served countless others in church and AA meetings through service opportunities and sponsorship. It's not a have to, but a get to. I have restored relationships today, and I know how to be a friend. I'm certainly not perfect at it, but it's not about perfect perfection for me. It's about progress. I wish I could say the past 21 years of my life have been easy and smooth sailing, but that's not life. I've moved to new places and started new jobs, but I didn't have to drink and drug through it. I walked with my mother and my mother-in-law through their bouts of cancer, and I lost my father to that disease, but I didn't have to drink or drug through it. I still struggle with food, self-care, and grief, but that's the beauty of this program is I can continue to work these 12 steps around whatever it is that life brings my way. Recovery is synonymous with sanctification, and I continue on becoming the best version of me with Jesus at the lead. Recovery is a lifelong journey. I believe in continually working these steps in our lives and walking with others on their journey. This might mean for you that you visit a 12-step meeting. Maybe it means you walk across the street and join in a life path group to learn more about how these steps may significantly impact your life and the lives of those around you. I definitely know one thing for, for sure. If you do, you will be amazed before you are halfway through. Thank you for letting me share my experience, strength, and hope. Thank you, Diane.
I've heard it said that until the pain of living the way we're living becomes great enough, we will not be motivated to change. Friends, sometimes pain is our greatest motivator to the transformation that we need. There was a time in my life quite a while back that I sat right about over there during a worship time and I cried out to God. I'd been in the midst of an excruciating relational crisis for what seemed like forever and I said, God, enough is enough. Can't you take this away? Won't you take away my anger and my sadness and my confusion and my pain? And gently God said, Jennifer, the things you're asking me to take away are the symptoms of something deeper. And the picture that was in my head was this black cancerous thing in my gut that was poisoning me and my relationships and my family. And if we didn't deal with this, it was gonna continue to impact. And so I felt God said, no, I won't take away your pain and your anger and your confusion because those are the things that are driving you to me to have true and lasting change. In that moment, I realized that there are times when my pain is God's grace because he will not allow me to stay in the true, under the waterline pain and issue, and he wants true healing for me. So no, he won't take away that symptom until we have truly had transformation and healing at the inner level. Friends, our pain, our trauma, our conflicts, our habits and our addictions, these places where we feel stuck, they're the very symptoms that can lead us to the cure that is Jesus, to true and long-lasting life transformation. As long as we are trying harder to fix ourselves, to white-knuckle it, we will remain stuck. But when we come to the end of ourselves and truly realize that we can't change ourselves, that's when we have just taken our first step to true freedom. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.